Good day, welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. And we're coming to the end of season six where we're exploring movies that are considered classics for whatever reason, whether they're iconic in nature or shocking audiences with controversy or themes that hadn't yet been explored in cinema yet. So, for today's episode, we shall explore a film that caused quite a stir with its provocative themes and somewhat labels these notorious acts as trivial or acceptable. So today's episode, we shall be talking about the 1971 crime drama A Clockwork Orange, based on a novel by Anthony Burgess and adapted to screen by the great Stanley Kubrick and directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring Malcolm McDowell, Patrick McGee, Michael Bates and Warren Clark. This is a hard film to talk about in terms of glamorising it because this is exactly what the film sets out to do with a protagonist who is a young thug who enjoys unprovoked violence and enjoys raping women in their own homes. And then it's extremely, it's an extremely brave thing to do in a film where the main character is relentless in these acts. The character is the protagonist played by a leading actor, Malcolm McDowell. It's a great performance. And he also acts as our humble narrator for this movie. It's very hard to pin down to an everyday person why this film is so successful, given the themes of it. Why this film is considered a classic. Why this film, with this distaste of society and youth, has become one of the most important films to ever be made. I watched it recently, and I tried to view it simply as a film, a piece of art. And I've seen A Clockwork Orange a few times before, and it never really struck me as intimidating. Yet, exactly, it was it's just a really well-made movie. Watching it recently, I still think it's a well-made movie. If anything, I think it's sheer perfection, the way Kubrick decided to shoot this movie in this sci-fi, futuristic, dystopian world where we're not too sure what society is at the moment. We're not even too sure what the government is or where this film is set. We assume it's England, but the whole focus is on this British gang who have this somewhat Russian slang who go around terrorising people to the extreme. And that's pretty much the first act of the movie. The second act, he actually gets caught by the police and they put him in prison and then eventually in an experimental programme where they believe they can cure him of this madness, this need to rape and kill. And then the third act of the movie, he's cured and released back into society exactly where he's left off, but with a few changes. The gangs that intimidated him or he intimidated are now police officers. Uh, his room at his parents' house has been subletted to a complete stranger who are who's more of a son to them than he was. Uh, his parents have brushed him aside and he has no place to go, so society society holds no place for him. So what do we do here? I mean, he tries to off himself, as he says. He tries to commit suicide. He jumps out the window. He survives. And then the government gets blamed for the flaws in the program that tries to cure Alex. They then try to convince him and the program is actually fine. And that, and then we end the movie suggesting that Alex is very much back to his normal, way, uh, his normal ways after Beethoven's Ninth Symphony reignites his desire for sex and violence right at the end. However, at the end, it seems that the very thing that was meant to keep him from killing or raping, again, is now redundant, and the film ends with Alex being how he was at the start of the movie, a menace to society. But more importantly, he is now back in society with a more hunger or a bigger appetite for violence and sex. And that's how the movie ends. It starts and ends the same way as this narrator, this protagonist, Alex, as a rapist and a killer. This is a very, well, how can I put it, sadomasochistic film. The film opens with Alex and his droogies beating an old man and then beating a gang and then raping a woman. And anytime Alex isn't raping or assaulting anyone, the rest of the movie acts as someone else assaulting him. So this movie doesn't drop down in gears. It remains consi- just consistent with the themes, but shifts the hands of the acts to someone else, Alex being either on the receiving end or the one batting for the home team. 
The world that Kubrick invites us to in this film is ambiguous at best. We have no idea what year it is. We just know it's in the future. It's bland. It's bleak. These wide shots he uses are deliberately crammed with random things, yet acts as quite empty in an ironic way. And it really sets the mood to these characters who are clearly lost or just have no choice but to resort to these acts, maybe out of sheer boredom or they just don't know what to do with themselves, although they don't know where their place is in society. And that's where I think Kubrick was trying to take us with Clockwork Orange. It's just dirty, completely alien and unsupervised it allows gangs to walk around freely with ease and compete with other gangs in these acts of violence and sex and what it does well is it gives the audiences a sense of being really uncomfortable the whole film is uncomfortable one key question a lot of people ask is are we meant to identify with Alex I mean just because he's the main character that we follow doesn't necessarily mean we have to relate to him he's merely on this journey told from a different perspective he acts as a, num- uh, as a narrator for this film, the humble narrator, as he calls himself. The job that Kubrick has to see is that this movie is in his eyes, not uh, necessarily ours. But he tickles with the idea that we should sympathize with him a little bit. One of the big themes is reform. You know, can you cure someone that has this kind of mind? And it turns out in this movie you can. But it was coincidentally done with the background music of Beethoven. See, classic art in this movie is shat on. There is no respect for it. Alex, the character, rapes to Beethoven. He fights with Beethoven. He loves Beethoven, especially the Ninth Symphony. And he basically spits on the elegance of the Ninth Symphony because it's such a beautifully, you know, it's just a beautiful piece of music that everyone knows or recognizes. However, in this film, we now relate the piece of music to Alex's sadistic tendencies. Even him dancing to Singing in the Rain, it totally gives that song a different feel feel for it now. For that scene, I actually read that Kubrick had no idea how to choreograph that scene. And he just told uh, Malcolm McDowell to dance to any song that he knows really well. And he chose Singing in the Rain and he loved it. And Kubrick went out the next day and he bought the rights for Singing in the Rain for $10,000, which is just classic art being ridiculed in this movie. Now, when he is being cured, the whole point is that he becomes sick when he sees sex or violence or gets a tendency to perform acts of unprovoked violence or rape. However, those videos had Beethoven in the background and thus he doesn't enjoy Beethoven anymore, which is a unusual side effect for him. He now feels sick and every scene we see with the attacks of the... Dutch cat lady, the Billy boys about to rape that woman is all surrounded by art being smashed and trashed on. And it does symbolize an attack on perception, how you can view things that you thought was once beautiful, like singing in the rain and Beethoven or Beethoven or even Alex himself. The film plays very heavily on the themes of classical art being a thing of the past and being overrun for this futuristic society of thugs. With Malcolm McDowell, who was 27 when he shot this movie, playing a, I think, 17-year-old in the movie, he has these striking blue eyes, but yet is a menace to society, and yet later he is acting like a normal teenager. In the book, I think he's actually 15, which is shocking, because in the book he rapes two 10-year-old girls, which isn't in the film, but in the film he's 17, and then spends two years in prison, so he's 19 at the end, which is still not great, but... But I believe the idea of classic art being trash reflects on the character of Alex. Alex depends on art. He loves being surrounded by uh, by art. He does everything with Beethoven by his side. And now after this supposed cure, you want to feel sorry for him. But we can't because we can't surely forgive a man that encourages these acts of sex and violence. I mean, at the end of the movie, um, I'm singing in the rain. It plays at the end of the movie. um, But I don't 
it's not the Gene Kelly one. It's his. It doesn't. The, the song doesn't remind me of Gene Kelly anymore. It reminds me of this movie, and it makes me doubt me even singing it. It's the same thing with Alex. It's like it's like liking the main character, but we shouldn't. But Kubrick tries to make us feel sorry for him at points, which is really scary and quite dangerous. The movie itself, after the first act, does this sort of satire black comedy with the backdrops of what we had in the background. And this is where the movie holds glory in terms of why it's so good. But it's hard to argue why this film isn't good as a piece of filmmaking. I can't force anyone to watch this, nor should I recommend it, considering the themes it has. Yet, as a piece of art, ironically, it's a masterpiece. Rebellion is a romanticized concept. It's what Kubrick says, and it's a very it's very evident from this film. And clearly others stem towards this idea, like American Psycho, which follows a similar story and somewhat glorifies what both the main characters do in their respected films. But look, let's talk a little bit about the film in general. It was adapted from a novel by Anthony Burgess, who wrote the story apparently because his wife got insult, uh, assaulted by uh, was it, four American soldiers after World War II. Uh, he eventually wrote the novel. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, of course, readapted this and put it on the big screen. This was his first R-rated movie. The original running time for the movie ran over four hours. And Kubrick made sure that all the unused footage for this film was destroyed. I can't even imagine what was on that, considering what's in the film at the moment. Uh, the film, strangely at the time, had no opening credits. Instead, all the credits ran at the end of the movie, which is quite... I mean, it's quite... Um, it happens all the time now, but in the late 70s or... Early 70s, that never happened. You always had a big credit sequence and then the film started, but Kubrick for this film just went straight into the movie. Something that is now quite popular to do in films like Christopher Nolan does this in all of his films. The movie just starts and then you have the credits at the end. He also reintroduced, or, or well, I should say reignited the caption, the end at the end of the movies like they did in the early 20s and 30s in cartoon and Looney Tune films. I think Kubrick continued doing this up until his last movie, Eyes Wide Shut, with Tom Cruise in the 1994. I mean, Tarantino does this now, so it's a cool uh, homage to the old movies. And as you may imagine, the film did incredibly well and also did incredibly bad. Well, in terms of money... It did well, but bad in terms of Kubrick and his wife getting serious death threats. So bad that he ordered the studio to discontinue the film. Which meant that this film wasn't available in the UK between 1973 and 2000. That's 27 years it wasn't in British publicity. A year after, Stanley Kubrick died. So British rental stores were consistently rejecting requests for this movie in the 90s. Simply, They just had to put a sign up just saying, no, we do not have Clockwork Orange. It got that bad. But when it finally did get released, I mean, it was the first to do a lot of things. It was the first movie to use Dolby Sound. The film was shot entirely at real locations. They hardly use a movie set. In fact, the opening scene with the big zoom out when they're at that club is the only time that the movie is on set or in a studio. The rest of the film is shot on actual location, which is actually quite a strange thing to do uh, for a movie in the early 70s because studios were just uh, quite heavy um, at the time. So the film technically wasn't banned as many people think it was. It just received an X rating, which is due to the death threats on the Kubrick household. If you want to see this movie, or if you wanted to see this movie back in 1970s, you had to rent it from another country, usually France. There was a film company which could have been what Netflix is today called the Scala Film Club. So if anyone's done film studies, they might have heard of it. And they showed the movie without permission. and Someone found out, uh, which in turn trailed to Kubrick, who then told Warner Brothers that... Uh, this this club is showing my film. So he sued, or actually Warner Brothers sued Scala Film Club and won. And it basically brought them to bankruptcy. If only they would have waited, they could have probably been highly successful because of the ideas was to mail tapes to household, which is exactly exactly what 
Netflix did when they partnered with Blockbuster. But, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. So, of course, there are many things that come from this movie. Uh, like like I said, first time. Like it was a first off. It was the unusual language in this movie that was invented, actually, by the author, Anthony Burgess. They paid tribute to him, actually, by naming Alex's, uh, Alex's last name Burgess. Even though in the novel, we never really find out what his last name is. They just call him Alex the Large. In the film, though, it's actually inconsistent because Alex calls himself Alex Dillage, as like a you know, play-up of Alex the Large. And then there's a uh, there's a paper sheet where it says Alexander Burgess. So yeah, it's a bit inconsistent, but I mean they're both both in the movie. But yeah, the language is called Nansat, which I'm sure a lot of Brits have heard. And it's a combination of words between English and Russian vocab. Uh, so Chaklovek means a person or fella. Govorit means speak. Pushka means gun. Nadsat itself actually means teenager or youth or just young. And some of the other slang is just old Cockney slangs like cancer means cigarette and so on. For Amer- for, for you know, for an American audience, this is a very hard film to translate for them. But for British, most of it comes from English slang anyway. So that's why it's very popular in Britain. So talking about firsts with the film, it was the first ever science fiction film to be nominated for an Oscar uh, for best film and I know what you're thinking it's not really sci-fi but it is set in a futuristic dystopian world so technically that does class it as sci-fi the only actual film to ever win an Oscar that is considered a sci-fi was only recently and that was The Shape of Water one of the highest grossing um, yeah so only one film that is considered sci-fi has won an Oscar in like, the 93 years that we've had which is insane Um, it's interesting to see how many films have been nominated let alone one so yeah but yeah Clockwork Orange is one of the highest grossing films of 1971 the budget was only 2 million dollars and it ended up making 28 million dollars and that was a film that was removed after 7 months because of the death threats I mean it could have probably made a lot more it's completely possible that this film could have gone on to break records if it wasn't for the death threats that followed from the release of the movie it was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Editing, and Best Screenplay. Three of those, Stanley Kubrick was nominated for, which is interesting. And I'm rather shocked that Malcolm McDowell didn't get nominated for Best Actor. I mean, 1972, the Academy Award, I mean, that was the year that The French Connection was winning big, won Best Film. Gene Hackman won Best Actor. I love Gene Hackman. Um, William Fredkin won Best Director. So it was a wipeout from um, the, the French Connection, which is on Star on the new Disney Channel, if you want to watch The French Connection. Great film. But yeah, I'm really yeah, disappointed that Malcolm McDowell didn't win Best Actor, let alone get nominated, which is uh, a bit weird. But yeah, Kubrick. This was Kubrick's first solo uh, screenplay, and he got nominated. So this was a first for him. Um, he, I think the only one he didn't get personally nominated for was the editing. It's sad to think that Kubrick never won an Oscar. It's like Hitchcock never won. He got nominated five times, but never won. Although nominated, you know, multiple times doesn't mean a thing. It's all about winning. But I guess it's the volume of work that speaks largest when time goes by, and that's what people remember. That's why Hitchcock and Kubrick. It doesn't matter if they didn't win the Oscars. It's that their films all, you know, survived the test of time, and that's what's important. I mean, it's one of two films that were released as X-rated to be nominated for Best Pictures at the Oscars. The only other one was Midnight Cowboy, which is three years before this movie. I don't think it's ever happened after that, actually. 
Um, but yeah, it's ranked 107 on IMDb's top 250 films of all time. It's rated second as the top 25 most controversial movies all time by Entertainment Weekly. Also rated one of the most dangerous films ever made, ranked third. It's also ranked in the 70 greatest American films. It's one of the highest grossing movies of 1971 behind the likes of The French Connection and the Bond movies, Diamonds of Forever. I think the highest grossing movie that year was the Western film Billy Jack. Uh, it's also included in the 1001 movies to see before you die. In fact, I think most of Kubrick's films are in there. And it was, you know, it was also the most popular film in France in 1972. And also the last year, the film was selected for preservation in a national film registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. A lot would argue about that, but hey, there's clearly no denying this film's caliber has a piece of art. As films go, I mean, most of um, Kubrick's films are adapted from novels. I mean, the film doesn't stay true to some bits of the novel. However, since I would say all of Kubrick's films are adapted from a source novel, like The Shining and Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, this is this is probably considered, you know, the most accurate. So accurate that they would carry around a novel and use it as a script. There are minor changes, as you might expect. Like, it wasn't a homeless person they attack at the start of the movie. It's actually a librarian in the book. Um, Georgie and Dim are not police officers in the movie, um, in the novel, but they are in the movie. Also, Miss Weathers, the cat woman who was completely helpless in the novel, um, she actually puts up a fight in the movie. That's quite good. The movie clearly tries to visually bring you in this satire world of what Alex's sees. That's also cool. And there are all these like phallic symbols in the movie to further show Alex's mind at play. The snake crawling between the legs of a woman, which, by the way, was not in the novel. The snake was only there because Malcolm McDowell was scared of snakes and Kubrick wanted to make sure that Alex was in charge of every room when he was on set. So he tested his acting ability with putting a snake in the drawer, which is still in the movie. He also managed to, uh, you know, managed to achieve a very symbolic phallic representation too. So two birds, one stone. Obviously, there are others like the tip of, you know, there are other phallic symbols like the tip of Alex's walking stick, the popsicles the girls are holding at the record store. Notice the 2001 Space Odyssey reference in that scene, by the way. And also the object Alex uses to kill the Dutch woman. It's like it's incredibly visual, this movie. I mean, it doesn't rely on subtlety to portray the mind of the protagonist. It's in your face. I still don't know how Malcolm didn't get nominated for this film. He got spat on several times for this movie. In fact, I read it was 30 takes because the spit wasn't dropping off his face in a certain way, which is, yeah, that's just Stanley Kubrick for you. I mean, the iconic scene where his eyes are gouged open and drops are being rapidly put in his eyes. I mean, the guy who was doing it was an actual doctor just in case anything went wrong. They counted over a 100 drops went into his eyes while he was acting out that scene, which is just incredible. I think they actually tore his retina and they had to wait for it to heal so they could shoot the close-ups of his eyes in the opening scene because they didn't shoot it in order. Uh, and the scene where he's being waterboarded by Georgie uh, for like over a minute as well, which was done in like one take. They had to put an oxygen mask underneath. But Jesus, he was there for ages. I think it was like a minute and a half. And Malcolm McDowell also suffered ribs for, during the demonstration scene. He just went through hell, not to mention the numerous takes that Kubrick would make him do. So that's why I say I'm very shocked he didn't even get nominated for an Oscar. I mean, in fact, he got quite a reputation for doing that scene with the least takes because he was that good as an actor. Like, Kubrick is a notorious thing for, especially Jack Nicholson will tell you in The Shining, he would make actors do multiple takes, multiple takes, like over 50 takes. And it doesn't matter how trivial the scene is, he would make you do it over and over again. But um, Malcolm McDowell apparently was nailing the scenes within 10 takes, which is really short for Kubrick. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, uh, it is a, it's a pretty good movie. 
But before I wrap up, I have to look at why uh, it's called Clockwork Orange. Uh, there's no real answer to this question, only speculation. But from this magazine extract, they said, aside from the metaphorical meaning of the title uh, Clockwork Orange, the name reportedly came from an offhand Cockney expression, as queer as a Clockwork Orange, which is what the source novel's author, um, Anthony Burgess, claimed he heard in a pub during World War II decades before publishing his famous work in 1962. Burgess has written and spoken about the title on several occasions. In an introduction called A Clockwork Orange Resucked, he refers to a person who has the appearance of an organism lovely of colour and juice, but is in fact only a clockwork toy to be wound up by God or the devil. So that's that's pretty much why it's called A Clockwork Orange, uh, according to the, the author of the book. So there you go. The film is interesting only because of Alex's character. Forget everything else. Everything around him seems utterly for or not with it or under certain strict rules. Alex, unfortunately, is the only one to act human or act with some energy. And I don't know what the film is saying about humanity here, but it certainly seems there is a dig about good versus evil being determined by the society we are forced to live in. And that's probably what the message of the film is, the idea of evil and control and reform. But it does make this film interesting to discuss, but there's no denying that the filmmaking and the performances here are near perfection. Well, listen, that's all I have time for with A Clockwork Orange, but please subscribe to me on Spotify, iTunes, and I'm also on Google, and you can find me on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, all lowercase, all one word. And once again, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.